Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello, I'm Dominic Frisbee and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears. I'm sitting now with Ben Anderson. Ben is an acclaimed journalist and documentary filmmaker. And in his career, which spans some 14 years, he's filmed, presented and produced over 40 films for the BBC, Channel 4, HBO and the Discovery Channel. He's presented five of his own series for BBC Two, fronted four programmes for Panorama, one for Dispatches and was twice a finalist for the RTS Young Journalist of the Year Award. In addition, he's written for The Times, for GQ and the London Review of Books. When not reporting from the field, he lives in London, just around the corner from me. And he's just published his first book. This book is called No Worse Enemy, the inside story of the chaotic struggle for Afghanistan. It's had a torrent of amazingly brilliant reviews. So, Ben, many congratulations on that. And why don't we start, why don't you start by, why don't you tell us the story of the book? Well, I've been covering the war in Afghanistan now, the war in southern Afghanistan, where the fighting has always been fiercest for the last six years now. Um, and it's got worse with each year I've been going out there. And I've come closer to dying. I've seen more civilians dying. And yet, over the last 18 months or so, something very strange has happened. The, the statements coming out of Kabul and Washington of London have been talking about all the progress that's being made, about how Afghans are always almost ready to take over, and about how we can leave in 2014 with our heads held high, having achieved our goals. It's even been claimed that the Taliban have been routed from their homeland in Kandahar and Helmand. And I just thought, this is absurd. This is the exact opposite of what I've been seeing for the last five or six years and filming with myself. And I've got hundreds of tapes to prove it. So I just, you know, you know when authors say I had to write this book, and I never believed them. I just thought that was pretentious literary nonsense. I, I really felt like I had to read, write this book. And I had to get everything I've seen down in paper on one place so that, you know, whoever reads it can say... This is what the war actually looks like. And I know that what we're being told is, is not what the war looks like at all. In fact, what we're being told is, is almost the exact opposite of, of the war I describe. Why are we being told the exact opposite? Some political agenda, presumably. Well, I, I think we've given up. Um, I think we've, if, if you look at our lofty goals back in 2001, 2002, you don't hear any talk about the women being liberated, little girls going to school, democracy. And we're now desperate to do a deal with the Taliban where they will get seats in power. They will get control of land. In Afghanistan, if, if you'd have said to Americans or, or Europeans 11 years ago, after 11 years of fighting, roughly $600 billion, thousands and thousands of lives lost, hundreds of thousands of bodies maimed, the best we can hope for is a, is a deal with the Taliban. People would have thought you were insane. But that's the situation we're in now. And, and, I, and I think the policy now is just to, to, to make it look as, as good as possible or to, or to make it look as least bad as possible. It's about getting out and saving face now. Um, I remember when, when, we, when we went in there for the first time, lots of people said, you cannot win a war in Afghanistan. It's been repeatedly proven by history uh, from the British in, in the 19th century to the Russians in the 20th century. You cannot win a Af- war in Afghanistan. Is that, is that true? No, no, I don't think it is. And, and the sickening thing is I really think we, we could have pulled it off. If you look in 2001, 2002... 
every Afghan I spoke to, every Afghan my colleague spoke to, wanted this to work. Even the Taliban said, we realise that some of our, our members made serious mistakes with, with you know, links to al-Qaeda, links to bin Laden, uh, and we're ready to play our part in the new Afghanistan. But in the first big conference on the future of Afghanistan, the Taliban weren't invited. They were snubbed because we thought they were defeated. Uh, and in the rush to get to Iraq, uh, we empowered the worst people in Afghanistan, the very people who have guaranteed it's, it's you know, there's been so much violence and suffering in that country for so long. Um, so over the years... So what we, what, we empowered corrupt individuals? War, war, warlords, corrupt warlords with, with all kinds of horrific crime, crimes on their hands. And, and, and warlords, why, why were they empowered? Was this not thought through properly? Because we was wanted to get researched? to Iraq. We wanted to get to Iraq as quick as, quick as possible. And anyone that could provide what looked like security was put in power. You know, Rumsfeld didn't care that these guys were, were, were the worst people in Afghanistan. And every Afghan, every, every Afghan child knew these guys were the very worst people. And the very people whose behaviour was so bad that the Taliban were allowed to sweep to power so easy in the first place because people were so sick of these guys that they thought, well, at least these, these Taliban, at least they're good Muslims. Maybe they'll be better. Maybe they'll be just, unlike the, these, these warlords we've seen before. And we empowered all of those people because we were so desperate to to say Afghanistan is done, we've won, and we can move on to Iraq. Uh, and then slowly over the years it got worse and worse and worse, and then when we finally realised how bad it was in 2006 and sent troops to the south for the first time, that then we really had an insurgency on our hands. But that, that absolutely didn't have to be the case. So we should have gone in, but we should have handled it differently. We should have done it properly. Um, you know, I, I think we thought that we'd invented a new way of warfare, where you, you drop bombs from 20,000 feet, you don't spill any of your own blood whatsoever... And then you move on to the next country and, and it's done. The, the, the Taliban weren't defeated. They just stepped, stepped to the side to see what was going to happen next. And over the years thought, well, we don't like what's going to happen next. And our, our people, the southern Pashtuns in Afghanistan, they don't like what's happened next either. And that, that's, what, that's what led them to come back and start fighting again. I, I know there are Taliban fighters who had absolutely given up on the idea of being in government and being fighters. And they were persuaded to pick up weapons again. So what should we do now? I mean, I, I think now it's damage limitation, sadly. I mean, if, if you look at what happened when the Russians left, it was um, the government clung, clung onto power for three years before there was civil war. Right now, that looks like a dream scenario. If you said to Obama or Cameron, the government you, you've put in power in Afghanistan, the, the, the security forces you've trained will cling on for three years after we leave, they would absolutely take that tomorrow. But, but that's not going to happen. There are areas of Afghanistan, particularly in the south, where, where the government we've trained uh, won't last 24 hours. Um, so, so now it really is just, just damage limitation and trying to make sure the people who believed in us and helped us don't get slaughtered when, when this next round of, of civil war. So starts. civil war is inevitable. Uh, it's already we, started. There's, there's, you know, if we, if we spent another 600 billion and sent in a whole army, is, is there anything we could do or is it just the trust is gone and there's nothing we can do? I mean, there are things you can do. You know, I mean, it's, it, you're talking very long term. You can try and solve Kashmir, for example. Then Pakistan won't be so paranoid about getting surrounded by India. Uh, then they won't be backing the Taliban. Um, you know, all, all these long-term pictures which, which seem to have been neglected. The policy we've got now is counterinsurgency. So it's, I've been told countless times that killing the Taliban is irrelevant. What you have to do is win the hearts and minds of the people, and then they themselves will reject the Taliban, making it impossible for the Taliban to operate. Now, to do that, you need to, have, you need to be working on behalf of a government that the people can embrace and will trust one day. Uh, that absolutely does not exist in Afghanistan. Uh, you talk to a 10-year-old in Afghanistan and they will say most of the crime is committed by the government, most of the violence is committed by the police, uh, the Afghan army are nowhere near in a position to, to provide security for, for themselves, 
Um, so, so the, the counterinsurgency policy cannot work. If, if and the, the Afghan mili- people actually want the Taliban, they prefer the Taliban. In, in the south, you have to understand that the, the Afghan national army that we're trying to spread is not a national army. There are two or three percent of them are southern Pashtuns. So th- this is a war for for the heart of the southern Pashtuns. And if we're asking them to make a choice between the Taliban, who who they're often related to, or know and and have provided security and justice for them before, and a government they see is corrupt, um, ineffective, and and often coming just for revenge against their historical enemies, then they're going to choose the Taliban. And, and you know, all we had to do back then was, was provide something which was better than the Taliban, which you'd have thought isn't too difficult. Yeah. But there are lots of people in the South who have said to me time and time again, please don't leave us alone with the army. Please don't leave us alone with the police. And you know what? The Taliban, they, they, they're strict. They've got very strict interpretations of, um, of, of Islam and, and, and Sharia, um, but they're just. They provide security and justice. They don't tax us at checkpoints. Um, they don't rob us. They don't rob the whole country. Uh, they don't abduct and rape our children, which the Afghan police are, are well known for. They're not drug addicts. Um, so, yeah, there are many people in, in the southern provinces, which is where the war is really being fought, who absolutely choose the Taliban over the Afghan government. And, and, and I understand why. Um, now, what you describe from, you know, Western decision makers sounds like, a, a you know, a catalogue of poorly researched decisions and uh, decisions taken with another agenda at heart um you know this is one of the reasons why a lot of people say you know foreign intervention is is not a good idea so i just want to take the 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 subject out for a moment and discuss the idea of foreign intervention because i know a lot of listeners to this show um would just say it's their business let them get on with it and uh, and I think part of you thinks that some of the time, and then, I, I, but I think you believe that intervention can work. So why don't we discuss that issue? Yeah, I mean, so if you look at areas where there have been progress in Afghanistan, um, a lot of it has come in the areas where we aren't. You know, for women's rights, for example, girls going to school. Um, so there are things you can help and encourage from the outside that come from within a society. I don't think you can recreate a society yourself. Um, but I used to be against intervention. I used to think that foreign interventions can't possibly work. But I, I covered the war in Liberia right at the end of the war. And the Liberian war was a, was a war. It wasn't a war between two armies. It was a war against the civilians of Liberia by a ragtag rebel army that were drunk and high and willing to do anything to innocent civilians, women and children included. Mm-hmm. I would love to have seen 100 or 200 professional American or British soldiers go in there and, and, and get rid of that rebel group. Um, there and are hundred soldiers could have done it easily. It would have been it would have been fun for them. Um, it wouldn't have been anything like a close. I mean, these guys don't even know how to use the sights on their rifles. Okay. Um, you know, it worked in Sierra Leone that the British, I think, did almost the perfect intervention in Sierra Leone. Um, before that, there was a, a bunch of South African mercenaries effectively were sent in and almost wiped out the entire rebel force in Sierra Leone. Um, so I'm, I'm for intervention. Libya was almost a, a perfect intervention. What comes after, of course, is the difficult part, but I don't think we can design what comes afterwards. I think that has to come from the people themselves, and, and I think the only thing we can install in another country is independence, and so they choose what happens next. I see. So get rid of the bad guys and then move out. Move out and, and, and support the good guys. Don't, okay. don't, don't install the very worst people from that country's history, which is exactly what we did in Afghanistan, and to some extent what we did in Iraq as well. Okay, that sound you can hear, by the way, is my dog marching around, so uh, don't be alarmed by that kind of flapping sound. Now, Ben, I mean, I've seen some of the films that you've made, and I've seen you be shot at. Um, You were back in Afghanistan in January, I think, and you said that an an IED um, went off 
you were, I mean, literally, I don't know, 10 metres away from you. I mean, why don't you describe some of the, some of the near misses that you've experienced the, and, and then tell us why you actually go there? The, the recent, the, the, the last close shave I had was actually seven IEDs and I, and I stood, me and a, a, a unit of Marines um, stood literally on top of them. It was, it was this junction of alleyways and you're always trying to avoid junctions, choke points they call them, because that's where there are always IEDs, literally always IEDs. So we stopped on this junction for ages, trying to work out a way to climb over walls or go. I around should it. just say, let's. What, what does IED stand for? Improvised explosive device. There you go. So yeah. homemade bombs buried in the ground everywhere, and, and, and freshly laid as well. Even in areas where there's supposed to be security, they're freshly laid everywhere. So we we tried to work out a way to avoid this choke point for very long, and decided we couldn't. The, the guy with the metal detector had found nothing. Uh, we didn't know at the time, but someone was watching us with a, a wire attached to seven IEDs and a battery. And that's why there was no metal in the IEDs, because he had it in his hand. And as soon as he connected the two, all seven were going to go off. Um, luckily for me, he waited till more Marines came up behind me, and I moved forward a bit, and then he set all seven off. And luckily for the Marines behind me, they were in between the IEDs when they went off. So they were they were deafened and blinded, I, I think just temporarily. Uh, but no one was right on top of one, so no one lost limbs or, or lost their lives. Um, but that was that was one of the closest shaves I've ever had. Yeah. And and when something like that happens, I mean, I bet the noise is. I mean, how long does it take you to get over the noise? Some, I mean, it sounds ridiculous me saying that, but yeah. the noise is what people remember. It, it's scary because it, sometimes it gives you a headache for like a headache that lasts for three or four days, um, and and you're really worrying that you're doing damage to your brain when that happens. But you yeah. must be though. Well, <laughs> you're probably a better judge of that than me. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah, there are all kinds of things which are probably just part of the aging process. You know, memory, yeah. memory failures and things like that, that it does scare me. I, I, I mean, I've been close to hun- literally hundreds of, of big explosions. Um, I mean, do you lose sleep at night? Do you have nightmares? No, no, I've, I've, I'm not. I'm sure I haven't had PTSD of, of any kind. I mean, I always, you know, if I compare myself to my friends and family, you might start thinking, oh, I've, I've, I've been brave. I've seen all this incredible stuff. I've nearly died a few times. Um and you might become one of those horrible reporters who's a real egomaniac. I mean, I'm sure you've met these machos. I've seen enough of them on the telly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're all over the telly. And, I, and, and I've worked with a few of them, and working with them has made me determined never to become one of them. But actually, it's easier than that. Um, by instinct, like, you just compare yourself to the soldier of the Marines you're with who have to kill people and maybe save their mate's life. I, I never have to do that. Yeah. And, but more important than that, you compare yourself to the people who live in these countries and who haven't got a return ticket in their back pocket and haven't got a nice house and a nice dinner waiting for them back in the UK or America or Europe, and, and then you're, you're almost a VIP compared to them, and you've got it quite cushy compared to them. I mean, I, I sometimes spend between a, a month and two months in Helmand or Kandahar, wherever it is. I spend a good amount, amount of time there, but it's nothing compared to living there. I mean, you know, I know I'm going to get fed. Um, I know I've got a return ticket in my, in my pocket. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can survive a couple of months of anything. But, um, I mean, you've been doing this for 14 years. You're, what, how old are you, 40, 38? 37. 37. My goodness. Uh, Obviously look older. <laughs> well, no, I was just, I was just guessing. But, the, uh, I mean, surely, at, at what point do you say, I've done Afghanistan, you know, now it's time to do a nature documentary or something? I've thought about nature documentaries, but, but you know, if, if I've done other jobs that, that aren't foreign conflict... Um, I've come home and I've been reading about Gaza or Congo or Liberia or, or, you know, now I'm reading about Syria every day. And to me, that just feels like the most important story in the world. I mean, you know, I I try and keep up with UK politics or American politics, but it just doesn't feel as big a story as as foreign conflict when thousands of people are dying, sometimes needlessly, 
that always feels to me like the, the, the biggest the biggest story and the most important story and if I can cover that uh, I, I kind of feel like I should I mean you've just come before now you've just come from the uh, London mayoral debates does the endless stream of unsubstantiated BS in Western politics wear you down? It's just hard to even stay interested enough to know the basic facts sometimes. I mean, I, I came home recently and there was a big debate about uh, pasties in the UK. Yeah. Because we introduced a tax on pasties because they're hot food and the Prime Minister said he'd eaten pasties and it turned out there wasn't a pasty shop at the train station. And this, this dominated the news agenda for, for three or four days yeah. and, and actually knocked Syria off the news. Um, and, you know, there, there was supposed to be a peace plan in Syria. The Syrian government just ignored it and killed another few hundred people. And, and it, it really does amaze me that, that that's possible in America, in Europe, in anywhere, that, that such a stupid, irrelevant story can take something like Syria off, off the news agenda. I mean, Con- Congo, I've been to Congo a few times. Maybe, Should we intervene in Syria? Uh, you know, like I said before, I was, I was always anti-interventionist. I would love to see some European or American planes coming over and taking out some of those tank units that are just shelling civilians in uh, in Homs and other places in Syria. And it sounds strange for me to say that because I would never normally say a thing like that, but over years I've just, you just see so many innocent civilians being abandoned by everybody um, and, and being allowed to be massacred by, by governments, rebel forces, whoever it is. Um, I, I would love to see it. And they're not intervening in Syria presumably because they don't want another Iraq or another Afghanistan. I don't think it would never be a, an intervention. For Obama. In, yeah, there would never be an intervention to that scale. I don't think that's going to happen again for a long time. But a Libya-style intervention would be possible. But because China and Russia have, have blocked it at the UN, it's it, it's not possible to get the consensus. Um, and, and unfortunately, it looks like the Syrian government knows that and has still got enough allies in the region to support it, no matter what. That the, the slaughter is going to carry on. Okay, so. Tell us, t- tell us one story from the book. Tell us uh, one story that, that sticks in your mind or that, that springs to mind as I ask you that question now. Um, well, I, I've said some fairly depressing things. So I'll yeah. end on quite, quite a, a funny story. Everyone that's been to Afghanistan during the Russian occupation, during the recent war, has normally got one anecdote that I think sums up the, perfect, the situation perfectly. Am I allowed to swear on your you, podcast? Absolutely. Um, oh, I was you'll in, get bleeped out. I, I was in Kandahar um, about a year ago now, and I was sharing a, 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 literally a cave with two, two soldiers from the US 101st Airborne. And there hadn't been any fighting for a few days, so it was quiet. So I was reading a book called The Hidden War by a Russian journalist who covered the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. And there's a story in it where he was on patrol with an old Russian commander, not far from where we were at the time. And suddenly they were surrounded by sheep that hadn't been sheared, and this was the height of summer. So the Russian journalist said to this commander, he said, it's so strange, why haven't the sheep been sheared? It's, it's so hot, they, they should have all been sheared. And the commander said, grab one and feel underneath its belly. So the Russian journalist bent over and felt underneath its belly, and of course there were Kalashnikov rifles tied underneath its belly, and <laughs> hidden literally walking past these soldiers on patrol. And I thought this story was so funny that I read it out loud. To the yeah, two. I mean, it's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, so I read it out loud to these, these 201st Airborne soldiers I was with, and I got to the end of the story, and one of them leapt out of his, uh, his bed, and he said, Motherfuckers! He said, we were surrounded by sheep that hadn't been sheared just a couple of months ago, and I wondered why they hadn't been sheared as well. <laughs> there you go. The same gags. They work time and time again. Great stuff. Well, yeah, who'd have think of that, smuggling, using sheep to smuggle Kalashnikovs? Um, ben, I just want to ask you one more question, because it's the, I think it's one of the big issues. of uh, is, it, Palestine-Israel, that's a story you've covered at some stage. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the solution there? Well, the solution is, um, I mean, every, every country in the world, I think, apart from Israel, and you could say the US, knows exactly what a two-state solution looks like. They know exactly what the borders will be. 78% Israel, 22% Palestine. East Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. Everyone knows that's what the solution is. 
but the US seems to be giving diplomatic every kind of cover to Israel to continue with the settlement policy. And the settlement policy, which, by the way, most Israelis I know and have spoken to out there are against, because they have to fund it through very high taxes, and they, their children have to serve in the military to protect the settlers. Um, people always say, oh, it's the most complicated conflict in the world, it's been going for 100 years. I, I've been there several times. I don't think it's the most complicated uh, situation in the world at all. I think it's the most simple conflict in the world. Everyone knows exactly what the solution is. But, but the extreme um, parties involved won't be forced to do what most people know they absolutely should do. OK, so let's assume that the correct solution isn't implemented and that this kind of uh, pro-settlement subterfugal agenda continues to be pursued. What happens to the Palestinians? Well, I, I think you see exactly what's going to happen to them by, by looking at a map of the settlements now. I mean, they're... You know, there's, I think, 150,000 settlers in East Jerusalem. There's a massive settlement east of Jerusalem. So they're kind of trying to circle Jerusalem. And pretty soon, and we may have reached this point already, there's not enough left for a Palestinian state. Um, I mean, at the minute, it's just scraps of land here and there with Ramallah. So where do they go? Um, Well, they'll continue to live as they do. They'll continue to live in refugee camps in surrounding countries. Um, And, and, you know, I I would love to know how it ends up. I I, I don't know. I I mean, fairly soon, it might be that Palestinians and by Palestinians, I also mean Israeli Arabs, might outnumber Israeli Jews. And then, then there's a serious problem. Um, but, but depressingly, I think at the minute it could end up where Israel gets every scrap of land and every access to water point in the West Bank as well, because that's, that's yeah. key, um, that they want. And, and then that's it, de facto, two-state solution, but with Israel having Jerusalem, the best bits of the West Bank, um, and the Palestinians having maybe 8 or 9% of what was their original homeland. Do you see... I mean, let's just extrapolate various Middle East tensions out 10 years or 15 years. Um, There is a definite loathing uh, of things Western in the Middle East uh, amongst some parts of the population. I mean, do you see this? I don't agree. I don't agree. The the, the vast majority of the populations in all of the countries I've been to across the Middle East are so pro-Western. And if you said to them, what country would you most like to move to? I guarantee 90, 95% would say America. Okay. Um, you know, they're against unconditional support of Israel and Israel's settlement policy, not not the existence of Israel, but Israel's yeah. Israel settlement policy. Um, I don't think there's a there's among the population I'm talking about there, there's the anti-Western feeling that we, we 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 think or we attribute to them at all. I mean, you have to remember that after September 11th, there was a hundred thousand people in Iran turned out to hold a candlelit vigil for the victims of September 11th. That's what the population think. Um, okay. But there's a political agenda that doesn't tie in with what the population thinks, both in the US and in the West. My question was going to be, is this going to morph into something bigger? No, no, I I mean, you know, there are the the, the Arab Spring has has taught us that that, we we always defended, you know, our support for dictators along the lines that what replaced the dictators would be much worse. Initially, it looked like the Arab Spring, which actually that's not true. The population want the same things we want. They want democracy, human rights. They want to be able to have opportunities. Um, Islamism, I think, has been more popular than a lot of people thought it would be. Certainly, if you look at what's happening in Egypt now, um, long term, Islamism doesn't seem to last. When it's tried out, when these people actually get a chance to run a country, uh, it doesn't seem to last. So, so I think we've, we've got to let it, let it run its course. And, and I'm actually very optimistic about how it will turn out. Um, I'm very optimistic about one day the Ayatollahs in Iran won't be running the country because the Iranians I speak to, whose average 
I forget what it is, but something like three quarters of the population of Iran is under the age of 25. The average age of the Ayatollahs is 76 or 77 <laughs> or something. You know, you don't have to wait very long to see how that's going to change. It's amazing how different generations uh, have power. I mean, we're seeing something similar in the UK now where anyone under the age of the 30 compared to anyone over the age of about 50. I mean, there's just such a huge gap in wealth and power that uh, I guess they say that demographics is destiny. And I guess we'll, we'll see some kind of resolve to that. But you also look at the generation below us. Yeah. And if you say to them, or if, if you were a racist, for example, or, you know, you said to them, you shouldn't like that kid because he's from Somalia or because he's Muslim or because he's gay. They'd look at you like you're insane. Um, so, you know, just just wait until they're our age and then wait till they're running the country. Um, a lot of the issues we think are major problems now, a lot of issues we, we think we should be scared about now are just going to dissolve, I think. Very good. Well, I, I just want to read some of these reviews that you've had. Um, I mean, it's the, 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 the reviews are astounding. The uh, Bing West, the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense and prize-winning author of No True Glory, writes, a tactile, gripping, first-hand account of the heroic yet tragic efforts of Allied troops to drive out the Taliban. A powerful read. Um, John Lee Anderson writes, Anderson deserves great credit, unflinchingly honest, um, uh, Louis Theroux says Ben Anderson is the bravest journalist I know. Anyone interested in what life is really like on the front line in Afghanistan should read this book. Um, the book is called No Worse Enemy. The author is Ben Anderson. Ben, thank you very much. Um, it comes out in the United States next week, uh, around about April the 11th, and I think you're doing a tour of the US, so good luck with that, Ben. And uh, it's out already now in the UK. So the, the film is available now as well. The HBO film, The Battle for Marjorie, is available now. So ah, that's the film of the book? And a, that, a film of the major part of the book. Okay, so uh, and that the film, when you say available on DVD or...? On DVD and Blu-ray, yeah. Ah, okay. Well, so we'll, in a week's time you can buy the book and, and the Blu-ray to go along with okay, it. Okay, do you get a discount if you buy the two together? <laughs> you don't, but I'll, uh, I'll do what I can to uh, send you a thank you note or something if you've got right. Very good. Well, Ben Anderson, thanks very much. Thank you. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 